Whew. Oh, this this probe is gonna be lit. It's going to detect so many anomalies. Hell yeah! I'm do this. I'll boop here. To boop. Hey, Peter! How'd that meeting go? You'd been meeting your hero, right? Emery, Team Beams, Erickson on board. You must have read his book like a dozen times. Wait, why, why do you have that look like you've got to go empty Flox's toilet after he has the hibernation shits? Joe, I I think our technology may have been made by, uh, I don't know, mad scientists? Go on. Yeah, so I got to meet Dr. Erickson, and I... Well, I mean, when you see him in person, you notice things like how horrifically deformed and hunchback he is and like, I don't know, like these soulless eyes. I mean, I figured I saw the picture on the back of the book. I, I figured, you know, that was like an uplifting story about how this disabled guy built the greatest mobility tool of all time. But now I'm hearing that basically he mangled himself by raw dogging that thing in beta testing. That uh, that does seem concerning. I, I, mean, I would safety's admit. a big deal in Starfleet. There, you know, there's rules like. And then I heard one of the Makos talking about how that new kid Burroughs died, right? And you know, they said it was an accident, but like his face got melted to death by a transporter chaos spirit. Wait, wait, what the fuck? Well, no, hold on, hold on, no, no, That's no, not what? the space ghosts. No, yeah, no, like. Not the you know the anomalies that like melt your face like this. This is like right. a living anomaly that like twisted his face off. Oh, oh, that's that's actually worse. This thing is trapped in a moment between life and death, unable to experience either. Ensign Rivers, okay, he told me that he heard to Paul say, and I quote, "It's the greatest horror that sentience could experience, all brought by that man's hubris." Um. Would you like some of these experimental anti-anxiety pills Starfleet this testing to reduce the horrors of our profession? They got that sugar shell. Got them in three flavors. I'm pretty sure you're going to have to clean this podcast off of Peter's ejaculate when we're done here on Viger, please. A heinous trip at Warp 5. My name is Joseph. I love industrial accidents. I'm your co-host, Peter. Peter, this is essentially the culmination of like six of our ongoing five-year-long inside jokes on this on this show on the show. Like this is a lot for this is a lot for us. This is a big Viger please moment. I'm excited to get into it before we start looking into our own amalgamation of uh, fun stories. There's bigger congealings of uh, IPs and stories and yeah. Movies. There's a transporter accident between companies about to happen. <laughs> Uh, yeah, if you're listening to this contemporaneously at the end of 2023, the big news is that WB Discovery is almost certain, it sounds, to uh, move forward with a merger with Paramount. 
It could be for the whole Paramount plus its umbrella company. It could just be for Paramount, but it does appear uh, Paramount's financial position is unsustainable as the read that they have. Go figure. They have spent themselves into a black hole and they cannot stay afloat. How many years? How long has Paramount's stock been falling? Okay, one of the strongest IPs that has had is Star Trek, and you've let Kurtzman run that motherfucker into the ground. All right, Star Trek should be as good as gold. You should be able to put that bitch on, let it run in syndication on reruns, and watch the action figures and collectible plates and T-shirts sustain you. Oh, right? yeah. It is I mean, a Star merchant- Trek used to be a massive merchandising brand powerhouse second you know a distant second to star wars but that's the power of these things it's supposed to be you sell the fucking toys you sell the christmas ornaments you sell the lunch boxes and they've ruined these things we talk about the action figures and the merchandising a lot because at the end of the day it matters people talk about sports i hate sports I know you like it. People talk to me about sports and all I see is a business machine built around selling jerseys and Nerf footballs and overpriced hot dogs because that's what it is. It looks like it's entertainment, but it's a thriving business. And with Star Trek and Star Wars and Marvel, a big part of why people are willing to pay $4 billion to acquire this IP is because merchandising uh, syndication and whatnot to sustain you perpetually. So when you let these yahoos run this shit into the ground, this is exactly what happens right here. On top of whatever nonsense you've done with version after version of your goofy streaming services. Can we put Let's put the number in perspective right now. Apparently they're valuing Paramount at like $6 billion for the whole thing. Okay? For all of it. That's Everything you've ever seen on CBS, everything you've ever seen on Nickelodeon, and everything else that they own, all those iconic movies and franchises that they have distro rights to, the whole thing for $6 billion. That's fucking absurd that it's that low. When I think Star Wars sold to Disney for, what, $4 billion a million years ago? $4 billion is what uh, Ike Perlmutter sold Marvel to Disney for, and that was before they really blew them up. Right, and that's after they got a little bit of success on their own. They did Iron Man 1 and The Hulk and some of those early Marvel movies. They had had taken off in the multimedia space in a way where they needed to scale. And so Ike Perlmutter sold because it was the only way to immediately get the scale they wanted Mm -hmm. to afford to do the movies they were wanting to do. Now that $2 billion in stock is going to come back to bite old Bob Iger in the ass. But so I haven't really read this article. This is Warner Brothers, which is HBO Discovery. Yeah, they just got done merging with Discovery. HBO as CNN is in that mix as well. You got um, Zaslov sitting on top of all of it. Zaslov correct. being the previous uh, CEO of Discovery, which it's still mind boggling how successful all those what I would call boring trash reality shows are, you know, house flipping adventures or whatever. It's interesting they're bringing new stuff in because it seemed to me, I think there were some pretty credible rumors that James Gunn was brought into DC to be the studio head there. 
to fluff up DC to make it appear attractive and then try to sell the whole thing off. Uh, now you're talking about bringing more stuff under the umbrella. And I guess that's $6 billion. I mean, that's not a bad spend to get some of that good it's shit. A great, it's a great deal for what you're going to get because it's at an all-time low. It's been degraded by the company itself by a bunch of yahoos, like you said. What's his name? Les Moonviz that gave um, Secret Robot, no, Secret Hideout Bad Robot, this ironclad grip over the crown jewel of Paramount uh, Star Trek, right? Like you've just completely trashed yourself. And that's all it takes. A couple bad contracts in the wrong places where you can't kick the bad out. That's exactly what happened with Star Wars. You know, they can't get rid of Kathleen Kennedy while she runs that motherfucker into the ground. Um, I guess for us, that's a win. You know, yeah, the less I mean, this streaming is the, this service. This is the, finally the chance to get rid of all of it, right? Like that's part of it too. But you know, yeah. the less streaming services out there, the better. And uh, you know, there's I'm sure something to be said about a wider market. But when you're expected to pay per streaming service, it's not realistic to pay eight or nine different companies to get access to the content you want. So great. If, a, a, if, yeah. Max that has Paramount's library on it is a great value proposition. And it makes sense too. Cause if Disney's about to eat Hulu in its entirety, as they buy themselves out from the Comcast portion, and they're going to fully merge Hulu to Disney plus. Then, uh, you're, then you're really at three mega streaming services. You'd have HBO discovery, Paramount, you would have Disney, Hulu, and then you'd have Netflix. And that would be it. That'd be your major players in the space and everyone else's boutique. And that's the thing. I think that's what people figured out about the streaming model is there's two ways to do it. So huge, you can attract a mass audience who are willing to just subscribe because you have enough content that it feeds every single niche. You think Apple TV's boutique? Yes, Apple TV is absolutely boutique. And the other end is – actually, I'll, I'll put them aside as something separate for a moment because what really I had in mind, if I'm being honest, is things like, okay, and then on the boutique side, you might have Roku has their own app where they kind of like make content. Shutter, the horror movie. Shutter, Tubi, um, you know, like you know, either niche genre or niche appeal type of streaming services where it's real low to the ground. And your mm. costs aren't particularly high, so you don't need a huge subscriber base because you're not making expensive nor licensing expensive content. I think the end goal on these guys, and rightfully so, is to have a giant offering that looks great, that people consider maybe a necessity, right? Which is certainly a point where I think Netflix was able to hit where it's ubiquitous. Right. And it's an assumed good to the point where they've started enforcing their um, password sharing and like, you know, making people go out and get their own real accounts. Uh, and you do exactly what Netflix has and what Apple TV has. Um, and even Disney Plus, right? And that is get a sponsor to buy your shit for the customer. You're getting that subsidized money. Who knows what kind of discounts they're cutting, but everybody who's got Verizon service has Disney plus everybody who's got T-Mobile gets Netflix. And I forget who's paying for Apple TV, uh, but you get that big telecom company out there. And that's where the real financial rape is happening, where you're charging people $30 plus a month for their data subscription lines. And, and you're just raking in cash there and you're giving some money to 
HBO Max or or Apple, and you say, hey, here's your TV for free now. That's that's the key to that success there, I think. I would agree, aside from being just low cost enough that you don't have to have that scale. Well, but- another part of that too then, is there enough money in a subscription to make it worth the people's time's long term? Again, we're going to fall back into Disney Plus discussion on that. Um, the real money, I think, and this is why you're going to start seeing more and more pivots, and that is these big streaming companies reintroducing compelling reasons to go into ad-supported formats. Reduce monthly costs. That's such a fucking bullshit move, too, with uh, Hulu, that you're going to charge money and give ads. Even fucking Paramount. I, I yeah. got off my pirate ship long enough to get a Paramount Plus subscription to see that South Park thing. And every time I turn around, it shows me like two fucking commercials before something starts. Outrageous. Yeah. Yeah. I I started pirating the uh, Enterprise episodes because I got tired of the ad supported tier of Paramount because I was only watching it specifically to watch Enterprise anymore. Are there so multiple like, tiers even? Yeah, because there's the ads tier and then there's the no ads tier and the no ads I tier. Was also the show I was paying for the no ads tier and they're still like showing like a trailer and it's not super, you know, I'm not getting like denture ads or whatever, but like they're plugging some fucking children's cartoon before I start watching lower decks. Like, fuck off. Yeah. Show me but the thing I'm paying for. <laughs> how funny to see ad based revenue getting back into streaming. And it's just like, I don't know who they're cutting out of the loop, the broadcast companies, I guess. But I mean, I think they're diversifying really their income streams because they have to know that broadcast media has got a time limit. Or at least oh, it's done. That's why Disney's unloading linear. All right, man. Listen, enough about this bullshit. Let's get into the Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We could go on for another 30 minutes, I think, about that. But we've got too much meat on this bone. What do we watch this week? This week, we're coming down to season four, episode 10, Daedalus. First aired January 14th, 2005. Written by Ken Lazabnik and Michael Bryant. Directed by David Striden. We know Striden. Lubzabnik and Bryant are new. And I want to open up. I hope you're in the mood for some real hypocrisy, Joe, because I got a big <laughs> heap and helping of it. Oh, oh, okay. Please, please. Where's this motherfucker at? So this episode is the brainchild of Manny Cotto, which per memory alpha, you know, he came up with like the hook of like, what if we learn about who the inventor of the transporter is? And he comes aboard enterprise under false pretense. And there's a little conspiracy, right? Right. Mandy Cotto then goes on to say uh, that he believes this to be one of his weakest enterprise final season installments. He says, and I quote, I wasn't pleased with the way the script turned out or with the final product. It was just kind of a flawed episode. Fair enough. Mandy Cotto, you got skin in the game. You're putting out excellence. You're the executive producer for this season and if you want to say this one's kind of a dud i think you're well within your rights but then motherfucker brand braga right i ready for this also criticized this installment calling it quote kind of a dreadful episode he went on to say quote all i remember is it just turned out terribly who the fuck (laughs) who the fuck are you other than the mind that brought us nemesis oh yeah sorry we're not uh, done shitting up the theaters 
to crawl out of your crypt of I used to write excellent Star Trek episodes. This is this is his dead zone between being a baller Star Trek creative mind, the dead zone where he shit up the first, what, three seasons, two seasons of Enterprise, and then would go on to write more great Star Trek as a, uh, a writer on the Orville. Okay, hold on. A Night in Sick Bay, a, a season two, episode oh. five, <laughs> written by Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, directed by David Stryden. Okay. I want to. Brandon Braga, shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> like, I thought this episode was actually pretty good. Not great. Got one big old weakness we're going to talk about for so, sure. Maybe. Maybe this is uh maybe this is just memory alpha. Maybe they cut him short. Maybe what he meant to say was, all I remember is it turned out terribly, comma. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's way better than any of the shit we put out in season one <laughs> and season two, because you know, we were just burned the fuck out. But Kodo's stuff was lit. And out of Kodo's uh encyclopedia of excellence, this one, it just it wasn't as great as the others. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's the actual quote. Don't quote me. <laughs> Yeah, like, if this is the worst episode Manny Cotto thinks he made, he made an episode that was better than 90% of the other Enterprise episodes we have watched, okay? End of story. We waited through endless, turgid nonsense to arrive at this place. I don't even want to click his name to see what other shit he has on him. It... Was this the best episode of the season we've seen? No, not by a long shot. But uh, let's put this up against the only other episode we can really compare it to, which is fucking Vanishing Point. Yes. Who did Vanishing Point? An excellent question. Which I clicked off of the list of episodes. I had up. It was in season two. Vanishing Point Season 2, Episode 10. All right, so that was... Oh, look at that. Oh, my God! If it is an old Rick Berman and Bran Braga, directed by David Stryden. Oh, my Lord. Let me... Shits and gigs. (laughs) Hold on. This is is like a horror film. (laughs) This is... You you say Manny Cotto is the killer, but Bran Braga, I see your fingerprints on the knife. And David Strident at every stage overseeing disaster. There's no quotes on this one, um, but I would not have been surprised to see and hear Brand Braga talking about what a fucking uh, wonderful jaunt this was through Star Trek lore. Listen, uh, this is the episode that I've been waiting for. Oh, yeah. Everything that I criticize Vanishing Point on, which is Hoshi's transporter hallucination adventure. They effectively retcon in this thing, and they tell the story the correct way. Uh, I'm wearing a shirt. I don't know if you can see it here. It's the Half-Life shirt, yeah. It is the Half-Life shirt. It's the Lambda. Because this, I've determined, is a genre that I'm just, I'm into. And I say industrial accidents. And that's ultimately what every single transporter story is, right? Right. Mist. Right? Um. Stephen King's Mist, Half-Life, the game, which is based heavily on Mist, The Fly. Uh, You know, you put a transporter technology out there in any sort of science fiction, and it is 
basically, yeah. I mean, that's it's yeah. trans warping, but um, it's going to turn into some sort of a horror story. And yet, somehow, Star Trek has always kind of been the sterling example of like, yeah, there was that one time in the motion picture, but like by and large, for the most part, transporters are fine and they work like 93% of the time and it's perfectly serviceable and great. Especially and in like late Trek, they get real just happy go lucky with it, right? They get real easy with it as time goes on. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more restricted at first, but it turns into a crutch. Did so again, transporters in Star Trek are a cost saving tool. It would be too expensive to have shuttle entry scenes in every episode. So Gene Ronberry or whoever he got the idea from was like, we just magically put them on the surface and we put some blinky lights. Now we're cutting out a big chunk of the special effects budgets. And in the process, you've made this fantastic technology, which is like cornerstone to the franchise. Was there really anything that you can think of that expressed the transporter technology trope prior to original series? No, not like the, not like how Star Trek conceptualized it, right? Like the idea of alien transportation or space transportation was always present in science fiction, like even in like Flash Gordon stuff. But Star Trek tech technologicalized it, I guess would be the way I would describe it. Turned it into a thing, a machine that was made that has rules that has supposed to have some kind of physics involved, that is a system that's limited, that has a logic to it that is respected within the work. That was definitely Star Trek's innovation. So I would be comfortable in saying that Star Trek is really the origin of the known commodity of technology-based teleportation. <clears throat> and it would make sense that <clears throat> anything else after is really anything that's derivative has to put an evil or a malicious slant on it to make it interesting. Otherwise, it's just Star Trek knock off and that's boring right so therefore going and telling this origin story which is pretty fucking dark feels good and i don't know what brand braga would have been looking for out of this episode and i'm really I'm more curious again man it's a shame that kodo died because i think we would have had a pretty legitimate shot to get him on the air. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Like we, we said before, we've never been able to get a guest for our show. I've never really tried either, but Manny Cotto would have probably, if he was still alive, be someone I would try to get on the show. I would be very interested to talk to him about the decisions that he made about the creative compromises that he committed to in order to get this show in the spot that he did to create, frankly an excellent season of television that's completely underappreciated i'd be interested to say in this episode specifically like what are the shortcomings that that you know made you see this as a flawed episode yeah um i mean i think i see one on the right off the jump and that is our main guest star um the, the main character of this episode is going to be the actual factual creator of the transporter a man they call emery uh uh, Eckerson. Erickson, rather. Emery Erickson. And Emery Erickson is played by Bill Cobbs, who is like the 
the archetypal that guy actor. I don't know. Like when you think of the that guy actor, this dude is actually fulfilling the trope. You name a television show that was on the air from 1985 to 2015. He did at least one episode. If you needed a sage, non-threatening black man, this was the guy you hired for 30 years. His biggest role that you would recognize him from, um, he was the guy in Stallone's Demolition Man that was like the young rookie cop before Stallone went into crowd freezing. Then he wakes up in the uh, <laughs> the city of tomorrow. Uh, was it San Francisco? L.A. Uh, L.A., which is <laughs> every... <laughs> <laughs> like every joke they made in that movie is somehow come true in this fucking <laughs> it, it's amazing how uh even a bad huxley adaptation is still right <laughs> a little too right uh but he's the you know the old cop that oh i remember john spartan um more notably for me this guy played reverend james senior out of one episode of Sopranos, which I'm currently watching through right now. Do you remember this guy in that? No, I don't. It's been a long time since I watched the Sopranos. That's actually a show He's I should probably guy. revisit. They, uh, they have a, uh, uh, the, the, the black, um, church pastor gets like a angry mob together to protest the hiring practices of some construction companies so they can have a big, um, riot basically and the reverend's dirty and on the take from tony soprano but that's his dad who would have disproved of the the sham going on i don't know i just watched that episode so it's interesting to see this guy here more to the point though i initially thought that this guy was the uh, actor who played eli vance in half-life 2 or half-life and half-life 2 no which kidding would have been a great tie-in but it's not the same guy oh okay all right. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not. Would he have been kind of looks like him, though. I can see that. Because he's a that guy. He yeah. could have very easily have been that guy. Uh, when we open up on this, I don't know. My, my notes start with uh, Archer kissing a friend on the mouth. <laughs> he is very close uh, to uh, his childhood friend, Donica, I suppose. Oh, I real quick. So, uh, Archer and Tucker are talking in the hallway. They're about to have on the creator of the transporter, Emery Erickson and Tucker's starstruck, you know, it's like meeting one of the, the pillars of, of uh, scientific life. It's like, you know, you can't meet uh, Einstein. This is like meeting Enrico Femri or something, you know, like someone in that strata of amazing scientific minds. And it's played by, uh, that the aforementioned that guy, uh, Bill Cobb, who just really wasn't ready to play this role he was given, in my opinion. I guess that was the point I was trying to make earlier. Uh, he doesn't seem to play it with the level of presence and seriousness that I think it required, which is unfortunate because I just don't think that he doesn't have the talent. I don't think he was directed well. How dare you speak of David Strayden like that? I'm sorry, David Stryden, having just re- seen a couple of your prior uh, entries, I'm willing to blame you for not getting the most out of this guy. Um, when but- Trip and Archer are talking, it really reinforces what a 
the privilege that Jonathan Archer had growing up, that not only was his dad a big fucking deal scientist, but Archer knows Zephram Cochran, the you know inventor of warp travel, and he just happens to have grown up as the uh, uh, like like the inventor of the transporter was his father. Like what a yeah. well connected guy. <laughs> yeah, his his actual father was a uh, revolutionary warp theorist that created the most advanced technological transportation device ever known to man, and his surrogate father was the guy who invented the other one. You know, <laughs> like, oh, wow. Speaking really, of Archer's dad, I could have really gone if uh, this Erickson guy had thrown some shade, like some real shade at the Vulcans. Um, oh, yeah. Given a more grounding in that, like where that came from. With as much as Archer's dad seemed to hate the Vulcans, and as we have found out, Romulan influences or whatever being involved in, like, directing the Vulcans to be shitty towards earth and their scientific pursuits. I think this guy would have been primed to have felt some of that, uh, negative attention as well from the, um, the, the Vulcans. But, uh, when we had picked up initially with start, uh, with enterprise episode one, they had laid down some ground rules about the transporter. It was still a very new technology. Yeah. I believe and people and people were not comfortable taking it. Enterprise is the first Starfleet vessel that had one installed. If I read that scene correctly, right? Yeah. Uh, that technically it was cleared for human use, but its primary function was supposed to be transporting inorganics. And that it was kind of this uh, fringe technology that, like you said, no one was really excited about at this point where Trip and Archer are talking and Trip's kind of geeking out over it. Feels like it's a bit more of a normalized technology or not quite as fringe as we were led to believe in episode one. I think that this crew in particular has become very comfortable using it. We've discussed that. You know, they had no choice but to become reliant on its efficiency and utility when they were in the Delphic Expanse. Everyone has used it. And so now they're they're certainly comfortable with it. They're certainly it's become useful at a minimum for its application that was immediately uh, uh, seized upon for non-organic and you know solid objects. So like suddenly moving cargo became trivial globally. I'm sure that was a huge deal, right? Moving cargo into into orbit became trivial overnight, like. These are huge economic costs and physics problems that suddenly vanished. So, okay, even if people transporting was something that kind of came later, this had to have been a transformative technology long before Enterprise By started. destroying Earth's dependence on long-haul trucking, you have effectively eradicated nine out of ten pop bottles full of piss discarded on the side of the road. <laughs> you know what a huge win that is for the environment? It's just gigantic. It's just, it's these second order effects. You just never know the positive things you're going to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. You thought that there was some real Captain Planet moments in uh, Voyager, the the Enterprise episode where they, <laughs> they destroy the perpetrator of piss bottles. Big deal. Uh, they beam them up. 
he comes on board. We see him in the wheelchair. So obviously we know something's up. Uh, he's got his daughter there. As you mentioned, Archer kisses her on the mouth. Kisses her right on the mouth. They they play it as friends the rest of the way, but that was an odd choice. I've been seeing a lot of people get kissed on the face with my Sopranos viewing. Uh, and yeah, this one jumped out as a, as a shock to me. Uh, a, you know, I bet you're really excited to see the ship. Yeah. You know, my uh, chief engineer, uh, we'll call this the B plot, and that's Trip's got a hero. Don't meet your hero. Oh, yeah. Let us show you around. Trip's got another plot going on this episode, too, which is to Paul. And I got a question at this point. Does Trip know that the marriage between her? Oh, my goodness. We forgot to talk about it, Joe. Oh, Koss. Koss, the, the greatest husband who totally was better than T'Pol deserved. Koss, the true architect of the United Federation of Planets. This, this needed to be its own fucking content here right now. <laughs> Going back and looking at the Tom Clancy trilogy. Yes, of which we are very proud. Okay, you've got this prearranged marriage between Koss and T'Pol. T'Pol hates Koss. I don't know, because he looks a little goony, I guess. He looks a little bit like he should be the rhythm guitarist for the monkeys. Because he doesn't play the harmonica. And maybe that's something that really attracts her to trip. I don't know. But whatever the reason, she's got a real hair up her ass about Koss. Koss, who has never even gotten so much as a hug from T'Pol and wanted to push forward this marriage because he knows a hottie when he sees one, was A, willing to smuggle artifacts from a woman that he would have no reason not to believe was legitimately a terrorist up to his wife because the mom asked for it in doing so introduced Archer and to Paul to like the entire Serac movement and uh, Katra, right? Of course. Big fucking deal there. And then at the end came through clutch when he produced transporter codes out of nowhere that was able to get Archer to Paul, uh, what up to Pow and the Kasara into Vulcan High Command Chamber, where they basically revolutionized the entire fucking planet and got Vulcan into shape where it's going to be willing to enter into the Federation with costed this costed. Oh, and these also, things. also, I believe effectively prevents the Andorian Vulcan war. And Koss also was OK with like not banging his wife for like a year. Like giving her time to like wrap up her affairs. Well, that's just him being a, a decent person. I'm talking about sculpting the basis of the Federation with his own two uh, powerful yet tender Vulcan hands. Costs you the real MVP. It's true. Man was this the secret hero of the Federation you never knew you needed. And, uh, you know. To Paul, having let this big fish off the hook is in a period of reflection. And I like this. I like this idea that to Paul has got no time right now except to read the hot new chapters of the Vulcan Bible that just came out. Okay. Like, I got to admit, this is a very interesting plot point, right? What if 
you had a civilization that existed for thousands of years with very clear continuity and very clear historic record and very clear spiritual record. And then suddenly an authoritative text written by Vulcan Jesus himself is found completely intact, is authenticated and conveys the wisdom that your entire civilization is supposed to be on. You know what? I too would probably stop everything I was doing and read it. <laughs> what do you, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean Jesus had a live journal? <laughs> Hold on one damn second. Well, a, a, tw- a Twitter feed? What? <laughs> uh, so does Trip know that Kaz and T'Pol have effectively split? I believe, I mean, I don't think that they talk about it, but I would assume he knows. The I plot, I believe, think- is going to – the way I would describe the plot is that the plot suggests that Trip knows. He acts in a fashion because he says, I will not pursue you as long as you're married. Spoiler alert, he, he pursues her eventually. Um, this, this is because he knows that she's divorced. Hmm. Well, she has never explicitly told him. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that uh, T'Pol Bible plot there. I'm amazed that she is even in active service at this point and that she did not request a sabbatical to sit and read this book in its entirety and reflect upon it. Like nothing they're doing right now in this episode warrants her attention. Like you just saved the planet effectively two times. You beat the Zindi and you just uh, stopped the Andorian Vulcan war from destroying those planets and also dragging Earth in. Like you're not this. Take a break. Use some PTO. <laughs> You've done enough. Like, you can chill. You can chill for a second, right? How like, terrible would it be like, man, you know, I've been waiting so long. To, like, I waited two years to play Cyberpunk for real. And I let's, I get, I, I play it at night for an hour or two once all the kids are in bed. Um, and I was like, man, what if I die before I can play Cyberpunk? Like, not the end of the <laughs> world, right? But if you're like, oh, shit, the, the new Vulcan Bible Part 2 just came out. This is going to revolutionize everything. And here I am working this job where there's a life-threatening dilemma once every two weeks, if not once a week. You're not going to get the concentration you want under those circumstances. Mm -mm. And also being in that high-risk job, like maybe having the additional spiritual reinforcement of Vulcan Jesus's words might help you get through these harrowing uh, deep space horror stories that you so often find yourself at the base of. But yeah, no, it's good. She's trying to discover herself. uh, And now is not the time for body massages. Now the time for (laughs) (laughs) like I had my fun while I was smoking crack rock and touching your ass. (laughs) Those days are behind me. I'm a monk now. And oh, this uh, Vulcan Jesus Bible part two. It says actually wearing uh, size mediums, boys clothing while giving humans a body massages that's not chaste i can't do that after all (laughs) the new bible says that giving the body massage is haram what did what where'd all your hothing go oh i had to throw it away here hoshi do you want my old hothing i can't wear this anymore you never know the next time you're gonna go down on a away team mission you might need it becomes a fanatic anti-vulcan extremist (laughs) serac was a real cock blocker uh, you know, Trip's trying to be a good guy. He's trying to be like, hey, you need to talk about how your mom died. And she's like, that that happened a few days ago. I'm over. It's fine. How'd you read that? Authentically. Like, I, I mean, this is a true, like, no, remember, your girlfriend is an alien. <laughs> like, she, she is not like you and that she can 
she has to carry all this emotional weight. She had four days to process it. She's, She's kind of done processing. Though, man. She has mutated herself with space crack. You know, that's as we were told something she is going to have to deal with for the rest of her life is she cannot shut her emotions off and all she can do is work on fortifying them. I read it as she's not okay, but she's not looking to talk about it at this point. She's still trying to figure things out. Maybe even she's throwing herself into this, uh, this, uh, Ciroc Bible thing as hard as she is because it's taken her mind off of her mom. Or maybe that, uh, by exploring this Ciroc teaching stuff, she's doing what her mom wanted and that's helping to give her closure there. I mean, this is why her mom essentially died, right? Is to help her find ways to control her emotions. So she's literally doing the thing that her mom died trying to help her do. I mean, it just makes sense to me that she is really trying to say like, no, I have to have distance. Yeah. I'm working through it. I can't be tortured by this. There's also a quick scene where Phlox checks her out and goes, Oh yeah, your space aid's totally gone. Yeah. And I like the, the add in there too, that like all of the other people that have been living with secret space aids, uh, from as we found out inappropriate app, incorrect applications of Vulcan mind melds are coming forward and like, you know, getting defragged by the, what are they called? Syrians? The Syrianites. And the that, Syrianites. that mind melding itself as a technique and ability has become rediscovered amongst Vulcans. So, you know, we, we get the background, like, no, seriously, that thing that happened for those three episodes, this is going to be a big deal. Like all of Vulcan society is suddenly changing. Um, these are not, this has not happened lately amongst the species that live for hundreds of years. And if there was to be a species that could just turn on a dime and say, Oh, no, we're doing this wrong. There's a better way to do it. And we should do that now. It should be the super, uh, logical Vulcans, right? Right. Like, Oh, we have evidence. We were wrong. I guess we have to admit we're wrong and follow Sarak's teachings. How perfectly ironic. (laughs) (laughs) so uh we do have a dining room scene where it's archer hosting uh emery plus to paul and trip and his daughter do they usually have tablecloths i don't remember i don't think so i think you know that's one something i've never focused on so i can't remember Awful acoustics in the scene. I don't normally oh, notice sound. Audio for for your main your focus of this conversation was all off, and they didn't ADR it later. I wonder if this guy was just too busy or what. Because like, is it because he's older? I mean, you know, well, he wouldn't have been that old then. It was two thousand three or whatever. I don't know. Two thousand five. Yeah. The only time that I can never tell you that I've like put in my notes like this sounds. It is hard to follow this dialogue. Yeah, and it's a great scene. Everything this guy's saying is like fucking lore and world building that I am all about. And not only is it great lore and world building, take a big list of everything we've ever said, everything we've ever theorized, every transporter joke we've ever made. (laughs) Yes. Every what if. It is all of the. We joke, but we don't. When I with my opener. Like, Peter, this is the kind of continuity, this is the kind of detail you live for, right? Tell me the story behind this iconic thing that is very Star Trek, right? Like, this is your wheelhouse. The coolest part of Vanishing Point was a story that Hoshi fabricated that one of the initial test subjects uh, of 
transporter usage was scattered and lost forever. Only to go back at the end of the, Oh, no, that guy didn't exist. That never happened. All that stuff gets covered. And we'll find out that there were real sacrifices being made. Uh, do they even have the fucking quote in here? Which one? Any of them? Memorable. I mean, there's tons of quotes here, but... No, they don't. How could they not have this? How do you get a scripts? I don't know. What was the quote? What was the paraphrase? What is the quote? Psychosis, sleep deprivation, all the goofy metaphysical stuff about the soul, weird copies. All these things he lays out as uh, objections and pushback that his initial research got from Earth regarding dangers that transporter technology could pose, right? He is so contemptful of those concerns in the way that he he delivers his dialogue. Like, I can't believe people thought they would be copies. It's bullshit. It's Which, kind of that tone of voice. You know, the big joke there is that, like, every single one of those things comes up as like a real problem that some version of the enterprise is going to encounter at some point or another. Uh, and, uh, you know, toss in a couple of problems that Voyager gets to share in as well. The sleep deprivation and the psychosis, like there's the miss for me in this episode is that at no point does anybody say, well, Hey, you know, actually, which I guess it's hard to tell um, Bill Gates while you're sitting at a dinner with him. Like, yeah, dude, Windows crashes. <laughs> <laughs> I lost my fucking homework because your piece of shit 3.1 crash. Like, it, I get it's hard. Now's not the best time. It would have been interesting if Hoshi would have been sitting at the table here. Yeah, suddenly starts breaking into a cold sweat as she often does, reliving one of the worst moments of her entire sentient existence. Yeah, yeah you know, with just a slight miscalibration, we've actually determined that this is like the most effective means to torture somebody yeah in a small <laughs> like, amount of time. like hoshi just like looks up with this ghoulish stare and says i was in a hell dimension for three days because it was off by 10 microns you fuck uh, am is this real or am i still stuck in the machine she just starts taking her clothes off she just doesn't know what's going on anymore <laughs> this helps me wake up um trip mentions you know well hey you know if that's true then that means all of us are are don't have souls because we're all copies, and it's like, yeah, <laughs> awkward silence. <laughs> Jokes on you. Got him. He just like holds up a bag. <laughs> They've been going to me. You know, even as so far as uh, Kirk's Enterprise, McCoy is averse to using the transporter. So there's you know still people pushing back against it, but especially after That's we understandable. saw like a century later, you just got those holdouts, right? It goes from the majority opinion to the minority opinion. I don't blame them. And, you know, if we saw anything in uh, early season, it's when those uh, dickheads were given flocks a hard time on Earth. Like, this is not the uh, post-scarcity utopia of the 24th century. There's there's blue-collar dudes out there and having their atoms scrambled. I love his description of what the uh, first tests of the transporter were like and that it took, like, two minutes to cycle yeah, minute and a half to cycle <laughs> feel yourself disintegrating slowly 
I did like this. Like, yeah, the very first thing I did was vomit. And the second thing I did was get absolutely blasted. <laughs> like, could you imagine being the dude who invented the transporter rolling into the bar that night? The, Emery Erickson kicks the door open. You know, all of the blue collar guys are like, what did you do today? It's like, I split my atoms into a million pieces and then reassembled myself, bitch. Buy me a drink. I'm arguably no longer human. I like they called it the biomatter protest. Like everybody was down. It's like, yay, we can. Who cares about Amazon drone delivery? You can just beam your Amazon purchases directly into your house now. Oh, what? You want to move my kid through that thing to get to school? Uh-uh. Gosh. <laughs> what would transporters, what would terrestrial transporters do to the voucher system? <laughs> Suddenly, there are no nice schools. <laughs> all right so uh so trip has to work with emery to modify the transporter well, for what he calls hold on i, I don't new... want to leave the dinner yet because oh. you're talking about him walking kicking in the door and going into the bar and saying like eureka i've done it uh emery says you know there were it was not an easy process there were setbacks i know that better than anyone else which by the end of the episode, you can say, OK, well, this dude lost his son to this, but it's not explicitly stated. But later on, he's getting uh, medical treatments done to him and he pulls his shirt off and like his spine is shot. It looks like he has basically two spines. Yeah, it looks like things did not recombine together. And like you said, they smartly don't say what that's about or why it happened, but it leads your mind to say, oh, he probably was did a transporter. Um, development you know test and uh didn't come back all the way whole which happens with them transporters was that the first time it happened which would make the most i I don't know i mean maybe not like just because it works the first time doesn't mean like a subsequent test there isn't the first time there's a power surge right Mm -hmm. first time there's a power surge in the system and he happened to be in there a fly ends up in the matter stream and you know Kind of separate it out. Oh, oh, some of these molecules didn't get the right spot. I think we're mostly right. And then, oh, I've mangled your entire spine. You look like like the hunchback of Notre Dame. You look like a Klingon with two of everything. Um, They don't nail it down explicitly. But this this is the scene that I always needed out of Star Trek is that there was legitimate pushback. uh, And you can use your own decisions as to what was uh, a credible protest to the biomatter objections. Um, But it was not a clean technology. There were disasters. Uh, People had heavy reservations. It did change the face of Earth and that there was one man behind it. And turns out he wasn't a perfect guy. He was here uh, um, ostensibly. He says that his mission is to test his sub-quantum teleportation device. And so this is a enhancement of the original transporter that would transport matter and smaller bits, essentially. And the smaller bits could therefore go farther in a coherent beam. And according to Emery, this could even make the need for starships unnecessary because you'd be able to beam from planet to planet. That's the idea behind it. And he's here to test it on Enterprise because Enterprise has, you know, the most capable ship with the most powerful starship based transporter system. And 
we're going to conduct tests in this part of space where there's nothing around called the Barrens so that we can make sure we're not being interfered with. We can do our space uh, tests with as little special effects budget overhead as possible. (laughs) I mean, just such a great idea. Go where there's nothing. So we don't have to fucking build anything. Hey, remember that episode of Voyager where they had the Malorn and they were just, I think it was called Darkness and you didn't have to render any backgrounds on anything? We need one of those. (laughs) You know how we only have half the money each episode, Manny? So uh, when we do our one-offs, you just have to use the existing sets. (laughs) We can can literally not afford to build anything. Yeah. You you got some B-tier talent. B tier talent and get a that guy off to the races. Otherwise you're using all your existing parts. We haven't used a transporter alcove in the hallway in a while. Again, it's so funny that the transporter is just this afterthought shoved (laughs) in the hallway. It's like that China with your fine dining utensils you use once a year. Mm -hmm. They get out to the middle of nowheresville and they start preparing to uh, conduct these tests. And there's some weird power fluctuations and if uh, you have not seen this episode but you did see the watchman just think about dr manhattan starting to form himself and then slash the budget by about 98 percent of what was spent <laughs> and now you have um i don't know a blob of water you can kind of see floating through the halls this thing manifests near the armory reads there and some brand new no name red shirt literally Yes. Sadly, Reed runs off the opposite direction while <laughs> Ensign Redshirt, what's his name? Bowler? Burroughs. Burroughs is patrolling the area with a rifle, turns a corner, gets hit in the face. And I will say the effect of smearing his face, like we've just seen a fair amount of face smearing in the te- Delphic Expanse with the anomalies. Yeah, this guy looked very dead. You could, It's like this guy looked like it definitely got him, you know? This is like some Hellraiser level of what I will call vicissitude. I don't know if you're familiar with that term at home. <laughs> oh, oh my. Okay. Well, you know what? That actually, that one translates relatively well. I'll say yes. that. Vicissitude sounds like what it is. And yeah, his whole face, all the flesh has been moved around in a gnarly way. And then, you know, when they turn his body over, it just does actually have that sort of like horror movie. Now this guy's dead, right? Like when they tell you he's dead in the next scene, it's not going to come as a surprise to you. And uh, th- this is this is a rare escalation, in my opinion, in terms of Star Trek, where right off the jump, particularly in an Enterprise, you got a dead crew member. Huge. They were very careful about the dead crew members, even during the Zindi arc, all things Nobody considered. died until season three. And then we had one guy die during the Fur Trapper raid, right? I think you had one guy die in the opener right yeah they go they go in there and the the fur trade pirate guys they raid the ship to rob them and i think one person died in that no i think it was raiding the where the zindi guy was working on the mine they had someone die in that ep- i really feel like it happened in episode one but i'll have to go back and look i know it happened early and i know they tried to make it a big deal but all the nonsense in season one and season two were people realistically should have died. They don't die till three. And then this one just, yeah, a guy turns a corner, gets hit by an anomaly, which, you know, if I take the rose colored glasses of like lore geeking out off on this episode, 
super paint by numbers. Oh, yeah. Very obviously, this fucking monster is a transporter accident victim. Yeah, I guess we should separate to say I think you and I really enjoyed this episode a lot more than most people will because we're so invested in these details that this episode finally conveys. If like, I really get excited about Tuvok going to pray the emotion away camp <laughs> lore details in a terrible fucking episode, uh, I can certainly get down on this. But yeah, objectively, I get yeah. it. It's not going to surprise anybody what the plot is to this and what the motivations are and how it's exactly going to go essentially beat for beat. That is the downfall of this aside from your main guest star not being very good at acting his role. Um, but all of those pieces that you get to pick up along the way, along with incredibly good acting on the part of your main cast, which I don't want to overlook. Like you have a trip who catches on to the duplicity of his hero relatively early reports on that information to Archer off screen. That is later than confirmed on screen in a way that makes Archer suspicious of him and has him surreptitiously see what's going on. And the anger they have with each other over trip thinking like you have to obviously stop this dangerous scientific experimentation ship might get destroyed. What the fuck is wrong with you as well as Archer having to contend with not only that, but this is my surrogate father. I've lost a surrogate brother. This is my only opportunity to try and heal this wound. I have an obligation to do these things because, you know, this is my, this is my family connection. Essentially. There's two Star Trek episodes that go into making this one. The first one being Vanishing Point, because that was a story about Transporter Hell. There's another Transporter Hell episode. You might recognize it as the origin story of the Weakest Shit Award, which is Jatrell. Yes. And that plays in directly here. It's not an entire Talaxian moon full of people caught in a nuclear hell, uh, but it is one man trapped between life and death in a miserable situation instead of uh, Captain Archer giving it the old Catherine Janeway 40 second try. I'm sorry, 16 seconds worth of trying. Uh, he does put the honest effort in. he goes the complete opposite of the weakest shit. And he puts himself at big odds with his crew. Exactly what you're saying to Paul uh, trip. When they become aware of the fact that the premises for these tests is a scam and that this uh, scientist has tricked them to going out to the middle of nowhere to try and rescue his son that he is trapped in limbo. They're like, this guy is too dangerous. He killed a crew member right off the jump. He almost blew up the torpedoes in the armory because it's this unstable uh, chaos spirit lashing out from hell or purgatory. We need to get the fuck out of here. And Archer being like, no, man, I know this dude. Uh, I trust his father. His father's shown himself to be a little shady, but I can understand why. Like he wants to get his son back. I want to get my a great friend of mine back. The science seems solid and we're going to put everything we have into trying to unfuck this. And uh, there's some pretty good arguments like, yeah, that's never really been the strong point of Enterprise for me is Trip and Archer having their I disagree with what you want to do moments. Yeah, th this was a much cleaner and better trope when it was Picard and Riker, right? Like that was the peak. I don't think that's ever going to be beaten of like, here's the position of the commander. Here's the position of his XO and they'll be at loggerheads and why and how and who is right. 
that that they got it right there, but like, and they never got it right in Voyager. They, and in this it's been because there's so much inexperience around Archer's never really in that sort of they firm position to put trip in, in his Voyager. place. Timeless, which was, you know, immaculate. That was a good, uh, Chakotay versus Janeway, but take what happens in Daedalus and jump back to whatever that fucking story, what was that awful episode where Trip decides that he's going to save the gender neutral person from the oppression of society? Oh, God. What was that called? Looking back in season one and season two right now, trying to remember this one. Whatever that was. But that was Archer saying, don't do this thing. And then Trip doing it anyways. And then him and Archer getting into it. Like, this is a hundred times better. Like, this is the best time that I've seen. Archer at odds with his subordinates and Archer being able to defend his position and also Bakula being able to put in a performance that like feels very genuine. And, you know, I will say to the detriment of uh, the this guest actor, when Archer finally confronts him in his quarters, Scott Bakula is putting like 100% in and uh, the guy portraying Erickson's just kind of like, yeah, Half power, <laughs> half power. When he finally breaks down and like admits what's going on, he's like looking at the monitor. He's like, oh, you know, I, I couldn't trust you. It's my son, blah, blah, blah. Please help me, Jonathan. Save my son. Like the delivery was good, but it could have been a lot better. And I think that's where the whole weakness stems from is like. This- yeah. And I do think it, it is just a lack of direction because clearly your regular actors are willing to pick up the slack and understands what the, the scenes call for because they do it all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that's the the glory of having a regular cast regularly performing this kind of material. At this point, Scott Bakula knows how Archer is supposed to act given the inputs and he can deliver that through the script. The same with Connor Trenier, you know, they also have to have some degree of bullshit buy-in. Yeah. That, a guest actor, maybe just they have to care about the story they're telling. Right. And clearly your main cast cares about it a lot because it's theirs to help craft, right? They're, they're, they're the primary they're accountable figure. to it. They're going to yeah. be at those conventions. They're going to be seeing fan mail. If you don't treat the transporter with, you know, reverence and respect, you're going to have two basement dwellers raking you over the coals 20 years later on a podcast. Uh, guest actor guy like oh okay so there's a machine that magically transports stuff in my son to, okay i could do this yeah great when's lunch yeah there was a lot of that unfortunately where there needed to be much more desperation and it did drag the episode down it was the only reason i would say it's not great right like otherwise there- the drama would be enough to despite that being paint by numbers the drama and detail uh that it brings with you is strong enough that with just one a really good performance in that guest role and this could have been an iconic episode of Trek. This should have been season 1. Yeah, it would have been the best episode of season 1. Absolutely. Um they do uh end up pushing the output for transport range up to 40,000 kilometers which I think is maintained even through 24th century Picard Enterprises. 
but just to you know finish off the plot the rest of the way, Archer says, we're not backing out. We're going to try this thing regardless of the danger it poses the crew. Uh, they're able to lock onto the signal. Again, it's, uh, you know, Erickson's son. They get a lock. Sad music plays. The signal's too far gone. They're able to bring him in, but it's going to certainly mean death. And Erickson makes the call that we'll retrieve him anyways, because leaving him in this half alive, half dead state is worse than just bringing his son in and letting him die in his arms. Great. I mean, that's that is a fantastic idea for this scene, right? Like when you write that, like this is this is something that can really slap. You've got all of your people there. They're doing their best. This guy has thrown everything for the rest of his life away at this shot. He's lied to get on the ship. He's lied to Archer so that he can try and make up for this fuck up of, you know, I knew this thing wouldn't work and I let my son test it. And now he's trapped in the middle of this hell. That's a good point, too, is that his son died because his dad's pride. You know, how do I top my my last best invention? Classic Star Trek, right? Yeah, I've 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 fucked myself. Needlessly, and uh, people around me, loved ones are stuck paying the price for my hubris. Uh, Daedalus is the perfect title for this episode. Right. Gives it away right off the jump, right? And I, it's a great scene. It's a great idea. I love how he, they do materialize him and he gets a few seconds of life to be like, oh, what's wrong? What's happened? And then he's just dead, right? So, yes, he was somewhere in consciousness. He has returned, right? Very sweaty. Yeah. And unfortunately, the cellular degradation means he's just his organs are all about to fail and he just isn't going to live. But his father makes the call like it's better that he die in my arms than whatever this is. If if it's too degraded, if it can't be saved, let's get it over with, right? Let's pull the pull the cord. And I think, again, it's failed only in that your main actor just doesn't come at it with enough energy, doesn't come at it with enough emotion. Like the guy who played Jatrell did a so much better job in the, that scene where, like, he's showing, like, I have a shot who at also fixing this. came under the ship or came under the ship under false pretense. Right. This is a classic retelling of Trill. Um, and I'm not going to let the daughter off the hook. She She's not bad, but she's not doing anything to make up for lost ground that the that Erickson Sr. is putting out here. So redo this with some different casting, and I think this could have been a real fire episode. There was a line of dialogue which uh, stuck out I want to talk about. Um, Archer saying, I'm nervous for this, or Erickson saying, I'm nervous about this. And then Archer's like, you know, here's a here's an old story about my dad. I was getting ready to go into flight school and I was nervous. And my dad said, don't fail. Didn't his dad die when he was like 11? I, that is a bit of an inconsistency. Yeah. Like, if I recall from the Augments episodes, what he said was that his father died when he was like 11 or 12. To Pinar syndrome, or, or at least was invalid. Maybe he was just an invalid by then, or was like in and out, or had like late stage whatever his neurological disease was. So he may not have been technically dead, but at a minimum, I think he should have been checked out by then. I can't give this anything less than a, a good grade. There's yeah. too much world building. There's too much lore. Uh, Bran, you're full of shit. 
it's a good episode. If only because the story they tell about how the transporter came to be is so good for Trek, right? Like that it was controversial that people died testing it. The inventor of it is a gnarled, you know, wreck of a man who gets traditional needle shots in his back. Yeah. In his gnarled transporter accidented back. Yeah. Uh, this is all good. This is all fantastic content that colors the Trek universe in a, in a sophisticated way. And I, I like it. And yeah, like this is not even a, a meh episode. This is good. Uh, going on transporting ourselves forward. We're going to get into season four, episode 11 observer effect. I see. Uh Oh, set Hoshi and trip stand into the decontamination room. What's all that blue light? A pair of non-physical organians study the response of Enterprise crew to the infection of Hoshi and Tucker by a fatal silicone-based virus brought on board during an away mission. This is another one of the few one-shots they sprinkle in between their their arcs. Uh, and this is another huge cost saver. <laughs> You'll see. Um, I... I have an affection for this episode because the Organians tend ended up being obviously like an important TNG thing. And they brought it back for this. Who were the Organians? Uh, they're the species that were like the, the very peaceful ones on the planet, the Klingons and the Federation are about to have a war over. And then they intercede and say, actually we're gods and we're not letting you fight anymore. Mm. This was a test. Hmm. So this is like, it gives a bit of an origin story to why they chose to be more interventionist in TOS, which I thought was an interesting choice for this episode, but mostly it's strong because you just get some great individual acting moments in a way that, you know, when you've got professionals that want to show off how good they can be, you know, Hmm. this is a good example. Well, we'll see it. Indeed. Thank you for listening to Vija, please. We do appreciate it. See you next week.